Well, we have been reading the Song of Songs together, and we saw how the voice of the Shulamite bride calls forth all that marriage is meant to be, and she's doing it without compromise. She's making a plea to her lover, the husband, who we identify at the beginning of the book as Solomon. For just this, and in the key verse of the key passage at the end of the book, I've been arguing, it gives us the interpretation of the book. In chapter 8, verse 6, that we're about to read again, she says, she makes her plea, it says, set me as a seal on your heart, set me as a seal on your arm. She is asking that he would have the same devotion to her in public that he does in private. That he would, he would respond so that they could share all of what marriage was meant to be. And what is it that the book puts forth for us? That this union would be as long as life, exclusively devoted, reciprocally possessive, intergendered, becoming one flesh. I mean, that's marriage according to the Shulamite bride and the the rest of the Bible backs her up on that. And as she shows us, and, and we hear in the book what all that devotion means, the private part is very physical. It's a very physical relationship. And her, her song that we get is largely about that, that bodily joining together. So I'm going to talk about that today because it's Bible. Uh, but before I talk about it, I just want to address certain groups that might be listening or watching uh, just to give you a note beforehand. First of all, for those who are watching who are children, if you're watching this morning and you, your parents have decided they uh, would like to include you in this series and in what we're talking about here, I just want to say something to you. Now, I might be saying some things that sound a little strange to you, here's all that you have to know. Okay, children, you're listening. This is all that you really have to know. God has given mommy and daddy a special gift, a special hug he's given them. And this is why mommy and daddy sometimes need to be alone. This gift is not for you. It's for them. And that's why sometimes, you know, the bedroom door has to be closed and locked because mommy and daddy share this gift alone. And some of you are learning the Ten Commandments. That was such a beautiful video we had earlier of the children uh, reciting that God has made all things. And he's made this thing as well. And some of you are learning about the Ten Commandments, how God needs to be the most important thing to us and how we should never lie, different commands that he's given us. He also gave us a commandment about this special gift, mommy and daddy's special gift. He gave us the commandment because it's so important. And the commandment is that you should never share this special hug that daddy and mommy have with anyone whom you're not married to. He gives us that commandment because the gift is so important for us. So, I've given you some things to draw if you are 
you can go online. Your parents have a worship guide, and in that guide, you find there are suggestions of things you could draw about mommy and daddy while I'm speaking, and uh, you can do that. And if your parents would like to, I'd love to see some of those drawings, if they want to send them to me, of what you drew uh, during this time. Okay, if, if you are watching today and you are single, uh, and you feel that when this subject comes up, you do not want to talk about it. You feel like you're trying not to think about it. This is not a part of your life. You don't want to think about it. And if you're feeling that this morning, you've been feeling that during this series, um, I want to say to you, I understand. I get that. And so if it, if it really is too much for you, you can turn me off. You know, one of, the, one of the good things about this ridiculous live stream situation is that you can actually just shut down the window with a click. Uh, and if you're really feeling like that this morning, you know, I can understand that. And that, uh, that would be okay. But if you can hang on as a single person, if you can listen, there is something here I think that can help you in this book, in the vision that the that Shulamite Bride is putting forth for us that can help you with this subject and make it not so much of a landmine for you. And if you're here, you're married and uh, watching, I want to I invite you into this vision that we're getting from this passage, these passages that I'm going to read. It helps us to celebrate this essential of our life. So this morning, covenant lovemaking. Please stand if you're able to, as I'm going to read from the scriptures. And we're going to be reading because we're, we're giving an overview of interpretation to help you in your individual reading of this book, uh, to help you discern what's going on. I'm going to be reading from two passages, one from chapter 7, verses 6 through 10, and then chapter 8, verses 6 through 10 uh, this morning. So again, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, beginning in verse 6, and I'm reading from the ESV version. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> excuse me, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And then, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts, 
What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please make yourselves comfortable. Yes, it is the word of God. Okay. Here's a question for you. What do secular culture and the historical church have in common? What does secular culture and the church through the ages have in common? Okay? Now, there's a, there's a question for you. Now, if we were all here together, you know, I might ask you to raise your hands and, and give an answer. We can't do that, but I'm going to ask you to maybe tell the person next to you what you think it is, and uh, you can find out if you were right. What does the church historically and the, and the secular, have in culture, have, secular culture have in common? It is this, a really messed up view of lovemaking. I mean, really messed up view of lovemaking. Now, if I go first to the secular culture, I don't have to tell you this, right? You know it. You've kind of already got this. You've already realized if you have any kind of concept of what's going on uh, in the culture. The cultural engines of our society have degraded this gift of covenant lovemaking to something that is the casual, something that is an appetite, something that is commitmentless. And uh, we could go on and on. I don't have to. I don't think I have to with you. But I do want to say there is a particular part of this that 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 is really heinous. There is a, a lie, I would just say. It's a, it's a lie that's, that's really awful. That's part of this whole degradation, and it is this. That you only find passion in regard to physical relationships in illicit relationships or in relationships that are outside of marriage. That that's where you find the passion in physical lovemaking. And, you know, I could, I don't have to give you examples. You could find examples probably in the last movie that you watched. That that's where you find passion. You don't find passion within marriage. You find it outside of marriage. Maybe I'll give you one example. And it comes from my website. You know, some of you know I did a website on issues of gender uh, called Affirming Gender, where I wrote and pretty regularly for two years on this. I've taken something of a hiatus uh, from it, but... It, um, I've left up the content. And so the site still gets traffic. And the post that gets the most traffic by far is a movie review I did of this movie called I Am Michael. And the movie is about, actually, the true, true life story of a man who became ex-gay and became married, actually became a minister. Um, and this is the filmmaker's view of this, 
And so the message of the film um, is, is pretty clearly that this guy who becomes ex-gay is actually lying to himself. He, he's lying to himself about himself and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But what I point out in the post, and I don't know why it's so popular, maybe it's linked to from another site or something about reviews of this movie, but uh, what I point out in the post is that what you get in that movie, it's just this, this thing I've been talking about. It's a great example of it because before the guy becomes a Christian and decides that he's ex-gay. Before that, his life is full of passion. In fact, his life is full of color. There's beautiful colors all around him all the time. It's, 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 um, he has this great, great things going on. The physical relations that he has uh, are just so passionate and so alive. And it's just, it's just very bright, the scenery, the scenery around him all the time. After he makes this decision, this is not who he is. Then, all of a sudden, the colors are very drab, and you could just see it in the cinematography. He has very poor taste in furniture. Uh, his fashion sense goes out the window. He's wearing this ugly mustard color <laughs> to sweaters and things. And, you know, it, it's just, it's from the filmmaker's perspective, this is it. Apparently, after you become a Christian, there's no passion in your physical <laughs> relationships at all. And there I thought, there it is, again, this same principle. You know, Solomon himself summed this up in uh, his book, the Pro book of Proverbs, chapter 9. He says, you know, there is this thing, there's this sense that stolen waters taste sweeter, that bread eaten in secret is more pleasant. And it really is a falsehood that, that comes out of this that I think is particularly bad. It's the error of, of carnality. Okay, so that's one error. But, okay, if we turn to the church, remember I said this, they have this in common. I would suggest to you, sadly, that very often the church misses the beauty of this gift of what it was meant to be. And it's another error, but it also degrades the gift. It's the error of asceticism. And if there's one thing that I could point to that illustrates this uh, in the best way, it is the history of interpretation of the Song of Songs. Now, Pastor Darren brought this up, and he made reference to this, talked about it a little, and it's so. The church largely has been trying to avoid the meaning of this book in its interpretation. Not, you know, it's not anything of value in the, in the volumes that have been written, and there have been a lot of volumes written about this book, not, not valueless, but if you're trying to avoid the actual content, the actual words that are being spoken, you tend to miss, miss, miss the meaning. I was reading recently Gregory of Nyssa, 4th century uh, church father, great, uh, great theologian, and uh, he had written a series of, of homilies on the Song of Songs. I was reading his seventh homily on the Song of Songs. And Gregory is talking about the description of this lover, this woman, from the man's perspective. And of course, in his view, he's saying, well, you know, Song of Solomon is about marriage. And we know in the New Testament, marriage is about Christ and the church. So these descriptions are about the bride of Christ. They're about the church. And so the individual parts of the women that are being described have to be people in the church. That's his view. It's kind of obvious to him. 
And so when he describes, when the lover describes the teeth of this woman, he goes, well, obviously, you know, the point about teeth is that they're hard and teeth grind up food, you know? And so this is clearly the teachers of the church because the teachers of the church grind up the food so that the body of Christ can be nourished, right? And then when he's describing the neck, you know, and the lover goes on and on about that beautiful neck, he's saying, well, that is just like the Apostle Paul. Any, any rational person can see that, right? Because the Apostle Paul held up the head when the head was Christ, right? And the, the throat is also enclosed in the neck, right? The neck holds the throat, which gives nourishment to the body, which is what the Apostle Paul did. So, you know, that's clear. And then he goes on to the hair. You know, when you're describing the hair of this woman, you're any rational person, it's like it's obvious to him, any rational person can see that the hair is the part of the body that has no feeling, right? The hair feels neither pain nor pleasure. And so that's just like, of course, any rational person can see it's just like people in the church who are beyond pain and pleasure, who have so died to this world that they, they aren't bothered by pain or pleasure or these kinds of things anymore. So that's what the hair is. You know, this starts to sound like a, a Monty Python routine. It's like if, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, she's a witch. You know, I mean, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. What is so surprising about this, friends, is that this is Gregory of Nyssa. You know, you're dealing with a pretty bright bulb here when you're talking about Gregory of Nyssa. He's one of these brilliant fourth century theologians who actually crafted orthodoxy for us. This is, this is an important person. This is not some fringe guy. It just shows you where the head of the church was at. Even Augustine, you know, probably, quite possibly, the greatest, most brilliant theologian the church has ever produced, certainly the most influential. He contributed to this mess with his view that, you know, lovemaking was kind of a necessary evil almost, is the way that he talks about it, you know, for procreation. It's kind of necessary evil for procreation. And before the fall, Gee, maybe it wasn't really even necessary. <laughs> I'm not sure what on earth he was, he was meaning by that. But it just shows you that there are some notable exceptions. John Calvin being one of them, who said, you know, no, this is about a physical relationship. Go, Calvin. But uh, for the most part, you have these interpretations, and it's, and it's pretty clear that they are, they are, they are avoiding they are avoiding the celebration of physical intimacy. This is the error of asceticism. It's a denial of the desire. And if you look at it, friends, and you think about it, it actually is a reflection from the church or the culture of the problems we all have as we come to this gift. We're all coming to this gift influenced in some way in these ways so that we misunderstand it and we have sins against it in our past. And it's either this carnality or asceticism. There's either, either it's purient or it's puritanical. Although, you know, I don't like that word puritanical because the Puritans actually were nothing like that. The Puritans were not puritanical. But you know what I mean from the adjective. 
Either it's something that's made that's denigrated to be casual or it's something that's locked away in shame. In great contrast to this, we have the Song of Songs. In contrast to both, that celebrates lovemaking, but as holy, something that's holy before us. Because it is about a union that is, as long as life, exclusively devoted, reciprocally possessive, intergendered, becoming one flesh. And this gift that God has given, it proclaims that union. It cements that union. It celebrates that union. It elevates that union. And what we see around us in our lives, and therefore what we see in the Bible, is a lot about the abuse of this gift. You know, and I think actually the Holy Spirit, when he was forming and arranging things so the canon was formed, so we have what we have in the scriptures, I think he looked at the situation and said, you know, there's enough in the Bible about the abuse of this gift. There's so much actually in the Bible about adultery and about rape and about incest and about fornication. There's so much about the abuse of this gift. We need to have at least one whole book <laughs> that's celebrating how good it is. Lest, lest we come to think that it is something that's bad, which we have a tendency to do. And so instead we have this whole book, Behold, the Song of Songs, which celebrates it. And in the process of doing that, in the process, the song gives us righteous principles of passion. That's what I would call them. Righteous principles of passion. Because in its examples, what it's holding forth, and the way in which we are, we are told to look at one another in lovemaking, it's actually quite, quite erotic, the instruction that's given. In these, in these principles that come forth from the book, it's quite erotic. You know, the Kama Sutra has nothing on this book. Nothing. But the covenant lovemaking that's described here, it's still, it's still made holy. Because in some sense, it's still veiled. You notice as you read through the Song of Songs, it's veiled still in many ways. I mean, you could read the whole song go through the whole song, you still don't know what these two look like, right? These man and a woman, they spend the whole time describing one another, exalting parts of one another. You still don't know what they look like at the end, right? Because it's not pornography. You know, she, I guess she has dark skin, right? And he's rich. And what else do we know? So it's not porn. There's a, there's a, there's a veiling here. But at the same time, you're given the ideas of, of how you should go and the ways in which there's excitement with one another. So I'm going to give an example, just an example uh, from this morning. One example, we could go on, we don't have time to, but one example of this is what we could call the excitement of ownership. There's actually, there's something very erotic about the exclusive to say, to be able to say, you own my body in a good sense, in a good way. So that a husband knows, for example, when he is given access to his wife's garden, he's entering sacred ground. 
because that's a locked garden. And we saw that like even in the passage that we read in chapter 8, right? Her brothers, the, the brothers start speaking and they're talking about guarding her. So they know what a gift she is. So they're, they're looking at their sister and they're saying, we got to guard her. But how we guard her depends on the type of woman she turns out to be. Is she going to be a wall or is she um, going to be a gate? Right? How is she going to be? And if she's going to be a wall, great, we're going to enhance that. If she's going to be a gate or a door, then we have to be extra careful with her. We take extra trouble. And then what does she say? I am a wall. Right? Then the very next verse, she says, I am a wall. Even after puberty, even after I've developed, I still am a wall. I'm still guarded. So she's holding forth this vision of exclusivity. She's a wall, except to the one who has legitimate access. And then she opens up and says, as she says throughout the book, and we read in chapter 7, I am my beloved's and he is mine, right? You know that verse throughout the book. She keeps repeating it. It's this ownership. I am my beloved's. And the little twist here in chapter 7, verse 10, is I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. The same thing the Apostle Paul picks up on in the New Testament and, and highlights this, this principle of passion, that there's this ownership going. Even, even in the verses right before that, in chapter 7, verse 9, he is, he is getting ecstatic, right, about her mouth. And then she interrupts, and she says, this, this is for you. She offers it to him to have. This is for you and only you to have. Friends, it's, there's a real heightening there of feeling in this principle. Now, there's only one place where you actually get this. I mean, really get this in a physical relationship. Only one place. Not play, get this. I mean, there's only one place you really get it. It's in a union that is as long as life, exclusively devoted, reciprocally possessive, intergendered marriage. That's why the lie of the culture is such a lie. Even climbing the palm tree, you look at verses 7 through 8 before that, and I don't need to get more explicit. That's, this is probably the most explicit passage in the, in the song. But the climbing of the palm tree, that's, that's a possession. That's an ownership. I don't know how many of you have ever climbed a palm tree, uh, but I have. And in order to shimmy up a palm tree, man, you have got to, you have to, got to become one with the palm tree. You've got to really, really grasp it. You've got to hold it. You've got to possess it. That's what's going on there. So that's one example of actually righteous passion that is, is quite erotic in the principles that are given in this song. How does she do this? How does this Shulamite bride celebrate this gift in such a healthy way? What keeps her from either error that we are so prone to? Either shame about it, that we lock it away, or else just treating it in, in too casual a way. What is it that preserves a Shulamite bride's attitude about it? Well, she knows something that we don't know. She knows that this gift is, in fact, teaching us about God. About God. 
So let's go back to that key verse in that key passage. Key passage at the end of the book, I've been, as I've been saying, gives us the interpretation of the book, helps us to understand what it is that's going on, what, are, what we are reading. And the key verse of that key passage is verse 6. And what does she say there? She says, what I've been describing, what this whole song has been about, this physical relationship, you know what it really is? It's the flame of the Lord. Right? You see that there? It's the flame of the Lord. Now, some of you are reading different translations. Some of your translations may say, it's a mighty flame. And that's because the translators made a decision that the, the word Yahweh doesn't appear. It's just Yah at the end. It's kind of a suffix at the end of this rather obs- kind of obscure word for flame. The flame of Yah. And they say, well, that's just a way of saying it's the most, it's the most brightest flame. It's the biggest flame. It's like a way of, of saying a superlative. And sometimes it is. Uh, but I wouldn't go that way. I don't think it's just saying a mighty flame there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that translation. Because, well, there are a few reasons. For one, uh, there are more direct ways of giving a superlative in Hebrew. So here, where it's saying flame, yah, you really should take it as a suffix of, that's a sort of shorthand for Yahweh. That's the way it's, it's used quite frequently in the Psalms, the other great book of poetry uh, in the Bible. It's, uh, it's something of the Lord. And here, I would say, in the climax of the book, where she is, where, where it really is opening up to us, I think it's entirely appropriate that we would find now, finally, she gives us a reference to how this relates to the Lord. And she says it's the very flame of God. Or as the New Testament would put it, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 13, marriage, the marriage bed is holy. What you think about that. What does that mean? Marriage bed is holy. It's holy because it is, it is about God. Or as uh, Robert Browning put it in this uh, great poem that he wrote, a beautiful poem called Any Wife to Any Husband. Browning put it this way, quote, He gave us from his fire of fires and bade, Remember whence it sprang and do not be afraid. He gave us fire of his fire, his fire of fires. So how can that be? I mean, we know that God does not have a body. He's not sexual. And yet this song goes on and on about the physical lovemaking. And then it says, this is the very flame of the Lord. How can that be? Well, to to bring us there... I want to use a word that you might not be familiar with. It's the word perichoresis. Now, you may not know that word, perichoresis. I may be teaching you a new word today. Um, And the reason you don't know it is because of another great hang-up that the church has, and that's talking about the Trinity. But the perichoresis refers to how the persons, the divine persons of the God we worship, of the Godhead, actually dwell within one another. They are interpenetrating one another to a point where they are one. 
And this is very important for understanding the Trinity, for speaking about the Trinity, because it's a way of preserving and holding together both the unity and the plurality of the Godhead together as equally important. So it is the way in which they indwell one another and have delight in one another. They're just so delighted in one another, the members of the Trinity, so that the embrace of the first two members of the Trinity is such a love that from that love proceeds a third. It really goes beyond our understanding because uh, we, we don't have anything uh, that, you know, there's either two or one or, or three or one. There's not something that's both. But it is the perichoresis that we use to describe how God is those things. It's sort of like we're the children outside the bedroom door. Like, we can't, we can't have access to this. This is not for us, the perichoresis. They, they interpenetrate and so are in one another that they are, are one and yet distinct as different persons. So we can't enter in. We're like the children outside the bedroom door. We can't enter into that mystery. And yet, and yet, God because of who God is, just the way that he is. He has this passion for us to know him. He has this passion for us to understand him. We know from Jesus Christ that he really does want us to know him in just the way Craig was speaking about, the way we come together and worship to know him. God wants that, and he wants it a lot for us. So, how does, how does that happen? How can we know about this, this, this aspect, this, this dimension of, of who he is, even though it's not something that we could experience? Well, verse 6 points us to the way he did it. It points us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Um, as most of the song does, the Song of Solomon really does direct us back to the garden, doesn't it? Right? It, it's the, all the imagery is about the gardens, and, and it points us back to when things were ideal. And back in the garden, God made us in a specific way. He made us in his image. When he made us in his image, it came out as male and female, we're told in the first chapter of the Bible. He said, I'm going to make something that's in my image. And you know how it happens? It happens when I create male and female. And then what follows in Genesis 2 is a story of creation of gender. And the climax of the story is those two coming together in one flesh. It's a very deep truth. It's something about God. An image of God tells us something about God. And yet, it's played out in space and time. It's in a creaturely way. So God is taking a heavenly reality and kind of earth's hourly dirt and he's shaping something, some experience of love that is so intense that from it proceeds a third. So you can tell where I'm going with this, right? We participate. He allows us somehow to participate in the perichoresis in different ways. Jesus makes a point of how we're connected to it in different ways. But creationally, we regularly indwell one another in covenant lovemaking. So you see what it is. 
what this covenant lovemaking is, it's a creaturely imitation of the divine per- perichoresis splayed out in space and time. And it's different. It's not the same thing because they always have each other. We have a, have a pattern of, in time, kind of building up a passion until a moment of consummation. They always have each other. We remain separate, but they are one. So it's not perfect. But God seemed to want to have fun in doing this. And so he gave us covenant lovemaking. And healthy covenant lovemaking points us to that. It draws us to one of the greatest realities of God. Their ownership of one another. Their absolute delight in one another. Their possession of one another. And at that moment of consummation, when we feel contentment, when we feel that forever bondedness, we feel that because of their simplicity. Why do you make love? It's a way through which God is known. It's a signpost to the great love, to the very flame of the Lord. That's how she does it. All right, so before we're going to come to an end, I do want to help us bring this down to our lives. And I want to address these different groups that may be listening, watching in today. Children, I hope that you've finished your drawings, if you've been drawing this morning. What does this mean for you? If you're, if you're a child and you're, you're watching this morning, what does this mean for you? It means you need to honor daddy and mommy's special gift. You need to let them be alone sometimes. I'll let you in on something. I'll let you in on a secret. This is where you came from. This is actually where you happened. Because daddy and mommy loved each other so much in this special gift, you were born. So what does that mean? It means you shouldn't scrunch up your nose so much while I'm talking about it. If you're here and you're, and you're single and you're, still, you're actually still tuned in, <laughs> if you've made it through, what does this mean for you? Well, this, friend, this gives you a, the reason that you're waiting The question for the scriptures for you is, are you a wall? Are you a door? As you are waiting. But this is why you're waiting, because it is such a holy thing that we're talking about when we're talking about covenant lovemaking. So while you're waiting, let this understanding shape your thoughts and your expectations now. So that you understand this thing and, and you, you perhaps at some point, if it's God's plan, come to it without shame and without being casual. Either way, you approach it as a holy thing. And for married folks who are here, we have a command. Do it. What's the word for us today? Do it. I don't know if you've ever had a preacher like tell you this, but this preacher is telling you, do it. You need to practice it. You need to make sure this remains a part of the union. This is what we're being called to. And learning to do it well takes a long time. Is that, is that a surprise to hear? Actually, learning covenant lovemaking well takes a long time to do. It takes years to learn to do well. Is that a surprise? 
Is that not the impression you got from the, the movies you've watched? Yeah, I wonder why. But that's the truth. And do you know why? Because it takes a long time to come to a place where you are naked and, and unashamed with one another. That takes, that takes a long time to do. The communication that you need to understand what, what feels good, what hurts, what are the in, inhibitions of your spouse, and which of those inhibitions should be respected, which of those inhibitions should be uh, eroded. I can put it that way. That takes a while to do. And there are obstacles because we are affected by, sadly, sometimes the church's misconceptions and the culture's misconceptions. Um, we come to this gift, you know, a lot of times with obstacles. You can work out those obstacles. You can. You can do it. And, you know, some are more serious than others. Uh, if they are serious ones, because we know that this, what happens in bed is a thermometer for the rest of the relationship. And if it's a serious obstacle, then we want to help you address it. You can talk to me. You can come and talk to me about it. And if you don't want to talk to me, which I could understand, you can at least talk to Pastor Darren. Right? And if you don't even want to talk to Pastor Darren, uh, you know, Ironworks is is really neat church in that there are a, a, a number of members here that we have at Ironworks that are licensed counselors. So some of your acquaintances, actually, you could even talk to. You know, people, someone whom you trust, you could talk to about addressing this. But it's important to do. Don't let this uh, gift be neglected. Uh, don't let it keep these obstacles keep you apart. Practice it until it becomes the worshipful thing that it is meant to be. Because you are recreating, however imperfectly, what is perfect in the one who gave it, the fire of his fire. You're proclaiming the life of God. And finally, I do want to just address those who maybe are on the other side of marriage. Maybe you have lost a spouse and you find, what does this word mean for you? You also are in a position of waiting. Actually, whether you're on one side or other side of marriage, you're waiting also. But you're waiting for the signpost to bring about the reality. You know, covenant lovemaking is not going to last. It's not going to make it past the end of this age. That's because it is a signpost. That's where the children drew. Children, you drew that signpost. It's a signpost of something that you are going to experience when you are brought into the very love of God. And then, that, then the signpost is, falls away. It's, it's not needed anymore. And so you are waiting, but you're waiting again for the, for the time when the sign will be no more because you have what it points to. You have it, and as, and as much as we as creatures can, can stand it, to be caught up in that perichoresis, the love of God, the shadow, uh, to the extent that we can. So let us do that, friends. Let us heed this call. Thank you for, for joining us this morning, and we're going to have a song to respond and sing to the Lord. And um, 
may we be elevated by this gift and brought up. Amen.